Hello, hello, hello. Thank you very much. Uh, my name is Beth Guggenberger. If I haven't met you yet, I'm part of the teaching team here at North Star. And excited to dive into this series of Revelation. If you've been with us the last couple of weeks, you know David has started a series on Revelation. And if you're new here to North Star, part of the reason we are studying Revelation is because we do a reading plan over the course of the whole year. And right now the reading plan is in the book of Revelation. And I want to take a minute to explain why the series is called Maranatha. Um, it's, most of our Bibles are written in Greek and Hebrew, although there are a couple of words in a language called Aramaic, and Maranatha is an Aramaic word. And when Paul was writing a letter in, to the church of Corinth, he used this word demonstrating his understanding of what was happening already in the early church. They were using this word Maranatha like a code word. It literally means, come Lord Jesus or Lord Jesus come. We see it at the end of the book of Revelation in chapter 22. But it was, it was like a code word, and I don't know if, if you and your spouse or you and your family, you have code words in your family that like, if somebody just says this like one word, the whole family knows what it is that you're talking about. You know, like I have a bunch of kids and I have a lot of code words for them. And one of them I was thinking of on the way to church this morning, I have four sons between the ages of 20 and 25. So as those young men were growing up, man, they could eat like nobody's business. And we do a lot of hosting at our house. We have a lot of gatherings and events and people that we have over. And sometimes when you were making and preparing a meal, it like didn't produce as much as you thought it was going to. Or sometimes people bring more people than you thought were gonna come in the beginning. And whenever I was kind of concerned that we didn't have enough food to meet the, the need of the people that were coming, I would tell my sons, FHB. And they knew that, that that was code in our family for family hold back. Like, you can you can eat, like you can have a normal sized portion, but if it's not enough, I'll buy you pizza later. But like, just just, just use some discretion, like FHB. And so I could even say it to one of them and they'd pass it down the road, like FHB, 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 you know, like, like it was like a code word, like we're gonna put the needs of our guests above our own and this is what we do as a family and so eat, but know that more is coming. Like in the same way, Maranatha became a code word in the early church. It was a word that they would use when the circumstances of their world were difficult or discouraging or disappointing. They would say to each other, Maranatha. And what it means is he is coming back. You keep your eye fixed on what is yet to come. Don't get bogged down in the circumstances of today. And I know David said it to us last week, but I wanna make sure you hear it again this week in case you were somewhere else on Memorial Day weekend. But listen, as a church, this church, North Star, we are not aiming to be fancy or impressive. You will probably never see a smoke machine on this stage, right? We are a church endeavoring to be a Maranatha kind of people, which means that we're going to hold in our hands two things equally. One of them is a lot of hope. Maranatha people are people that are holding out for the hope of yet, which is yet to come. And there's also a sense of urgency. And we'll, we'll finish our time today talking about that urgency. But whenever you take a look at the book of Revelation, you can't look at it in isolation. First of all, John was a Jew. He wrote using the text, that's, so we'll find lots of references to Old Testament um, stories baked into the book of Revelation. If you read Revelation without your Old Testament in your other hand, you're missing out on much of what he's trying to teach. But, we're gonna, but the, the whole story that God wrote in the end is a bookend to how he started it, right? In the beginning of the first couple of pages of the book of Genesis, it says that God's people were in his place, experiencing his presence and his peace. That's how God created the earth. 
his people in his place experiencing his presence and his peace. That's how the story's going to end. God's people will be in his place experiencing his presence and his peace. And everything in between those is this extraordinary rescue plan. And this in-between, I want to just, that in-between really is, it's the flavor of Maranatha. So I want to paint a couple of in-between kind of images for you. If, if, if you've, I have two daughters getting married this summer. So if you've ever been around an engaged person, they're kind of in the in-between. They're not single, but they're not married. They're in this like longing stage where they can't wait for that to happen. That's a little bit of the flavor of Maranatha, this like longing that we're to be in, waiting for that which is yet to happen. If, you're, if there's any seniors in high school in the house, you've graduated, you're no longer a high school student, you might know where you're going to college, but you haven't yet set foot on that campus for the fall. You're like in this in-between stage, like you, and you're kind of, you just want to hurry up and you can't wait for life to begin. Or if you're pregnant or you're in an adoption process where you, you know the child is coming, but it's not here yet, but it's coming, but you're not without a child, but you're not with the child, like that, that sense of anticipation, that, that in-between, this is the flavor of Maranatha. This is what we're supposed to be in. We're like in the sense of like, I'm not there yet, but because I know it's coming, like the book of Colossians teaches us, I have my mind set on heavenly things. I, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about something other than this. We're longing for his return. And over the course of the early church history, this word Maranatha became how they greeted each other, how they parted each other. It was this code word, their FHB, for their new, their new growing Christian family. He's coming. He's not here yet, but he's coming. He's coming. If you haven't been with us, I just want to make sure you hear us say loud and clear, Revelation is not a puzzle to understand. It's, it's, not, we're not, it's not something we're going to solve. <clears throat> First of all, most of us were schooled here in the West, which has a Greek kind of thinking to it. In fact, if I circled you up and said, help me understand who do you know God to be, you would use words like God is sovereign, he is omnipotent, he is powerful. He is good. If, if we were trained with a Hebraic kind of thinking, the kind of thinking that John, the author of Revelation, was, and I circled those folks up and I said, tell me who you have come to understand God to be, they would say, God is a rock. God is living water. God is like eagle's wings. It's a, they're picture painters. Hebrew and this... this the whole book of Revelation is to be seen, not understood. And so a couple of times today, you might be kind of uncomfortable, but I'm going to probably ask you to close your eyes because when you read the passages, I don't want you to be thinking like, I wonder what that bowl means, and I wonder what that seal means, and I wonder what that, why does he have that many eyes? Like, it's not something we're necessarily supposed to understand. It's something we're supposed to see. God, under, God knows that, he, he knows that we can't, grasp what it is that's coming. Oh. I, I really actually liked what David said on the first week of the series when he said, um, he said, God uses John to paint a picture for how the story ends, which is all the more shocking why churches and Christians don't spend more time trying to understand it, because to ignore it is like watching an insanely long Lord of the Rings movie and then turning it off right before like Frodo climbs Mount Doom, right? Like, like the ending is the very best part. In many ways, the pictures that God wants to paint us in the book of Revelation is the very best part. 
It's the very thing we're supposed to reach for, strain for, hope for, long for, be urgent about in this season of in-between. But this weekend in particular, the content team wanted me to address the idea of fear and the fear we have about the end of times. And, and it can cause real fear in all of us. I'm guilty of it too, and I'm not even sure why. I don't know, like, as if this amazing and generous and perfect and sovereign God would suddenly become someone who I, I've, who's been other than I've known him to be this whole time. That doesn't make any sense. If I can get glimpses of his goodness in the here and now, imagine what it'll be like when we can see him fully revealed. But I do want to talk about this idea of fear for a minute and our relationship with it. If I haven't met you yet, my day job is with back-to-back -back ministries where I work with children who have had a trauma history. And as a result of that work, I've had lots of training in the area of brain chemistry and fear. And if there's any physicians in the house, I'm about to make neuroscience seem a little simpler than it actually is. I know that. But, but our brains are divided in different parts. And the front of our brain is where all the good stuff happens. That's called our prefrontal cortex. This is where problem solving happens and creative thinking and cause and effect. It's like all the good stuff is up here. Then we have these little glands behind our ear. They're called our amygdalas. And that's where our fight and flight and freeze response lives. And these two parts of our brain, our prefrontal cortex and our amygdala, cannot work at the same time, and the amygdala wins every time. Which means if any time you find yourself afraid, you aren't able to activate or access this part of our brain. So I don't know if you've ever parented a child and said to them ever, like, I do not even know what you were thinking. <laughs> like, they probably weren't, right? They were, they were, <laughs> they were back here, yeah. Reference back to the four sons between the ages of 20 and 25, yeah. Like, and, I've, and it would make sense that we would have some fear, right? I mean, does the end of the world as you know it make you afraid? Are you afraid because you love someone who doesn't yet know Jesus? Are you afraid because you've heard about like persecution and tribulation that Christians might face and you're like, I don't know if my faith can withstand that. Are, are you afraid because you're just simply not ready for Christ to come back? Because, by the way, Lord, I got some cool things on the horizon. If you would just wait, like, 18 months or so, I'd love to see how this is going to unfold down here on earth. And as I was thinking about faith and fear and all of that, I was, like, thinking, okay, is, is the antidote to fear faith? And if it is, how do I get more of it? But my Bible tells me I actually can't muster up faith on my own. We think we can. We try real hard to. If we read in the book of Genesis chapter 15, there's a story where Abraham, Abraham was like so faithful. He needs more faith than he actually is in possession of. So God puts him to sleep and does this thing called a blood path covenant in order to give him the faith that Abraham turns around and gives back to him. In fact, Jesus will say later, it takes faith the size of a mustard seed to move a mountain. It's just, just in case you wondered when this day comes, it's not going to be dependent on what we bring to the table. It's not going to be about who has known God the best or the longest. It's going to be about where our gaze is. Are, we, are, are our minds fixed on things above? This last month, I spent some time in the country of Turkey, and I was with some of the giants in our faith family, people who have been risking their lives and incarceration in order to share the gospel in places where otherwise it's illegal. And I was sitting at dinner with this guy from Egypt, and I was just making conversation with him. He's lived all over the Middle East sharing the gospel. And I, I said to my husband later, my gosh, 
he just looks like a normal person. Like if you saw him on the street, you might not even look twice at him. But if I could somehow put on these like three-day spiritual glasses, the muscles that this man had were like bulging. It would have been crazy impressive the ways in which God has tested his faith and he has been found faithful. But anyway, this guy's like lived all over. So I was just talking to him like, hey, so like, like where do you feel most at home? Which country makes you feel most at home? And he just looked at me, he goes, nowhere. I don't have a home here. I long for a home that is yet to come. And Todd and I just bought a house this month and I like leaned over to Todd and confessed to him, I'm longing for the home we're moving into at closing. Like, like, <laughs> that's just honest with you. Like, how, how do I get what he has? How do I have my eyes so fully fixed on a better kind of kingdom? I don't even care where I live. There was another guy I was talking to, and he was sharing with me he had just gotten out of jail. He'd been there for a pretty long time, separated from his family, from a country I, I won't disclose. And as he was telling me the stories of like what it was like to be incarcerated, I didn't really know what to say. I just said, hey, I'm so s sorry. And he quickly responded, oh, it's okay. Actually, nothing stopped. We started a church in jail. And I, I meant, like, I'm so sorry you went through that. But he thought, I, he was thinking that I meant, I'm so sorry your ministry got disrupted. Like, we were in completely different headspaces. And his gaze was fixed in another kind of place. He was a Maranatha kind of person. And in America, we can be guilty of thinking, like, because, I mean, I've never seen anything like I'm seeing in 2023, right? I mean, this country has got something, some things going on. And we can be thinking to ourselves like, this is so bad, Jesus must be coming soon. <laughs> but the truth is, hey, by the way, things have been really bad in Haiti for a long time. And things were pretty bad in Nazi Germany. And they're not that great in Ukraine right now. And God isn't watching us and then deciding when he's going to come back. He's coming back when he is ready and his plan is fulfilled. And he's been planning this for a very long time. And so if this whole like, you know, this country is going crazy. Jesus, just Maranatha, come back, causes you to want to shrink back and give up. That is exactly the opposite of the intention of Maranatha. Maranatha said, I've got hope in what is to come, and I have an urgency about it. So if I think that my country is falling apart, I better double down and dig in. Like, it's, it's supposed to evoke action in us, not any kind of sense of giving up. But whether we are ready or afraid, Jesus is definitely coming back, and everything as we know it is going to change. Our Bibles tell us that, and I just, this is the first moment I want you to use your imagination when you think about, when you picture in your head, like just between you and you, what it's going to look like when Jesus comes back. What does that picture look like? Like, is he come back really big? Or is he meek like a lamb and a shepherd? Is he on a horse? Is he on water? Is he surrounded by angels or saints? Like, is he in creation? And where did you get those pictures, by the way? Like, did you just think them up? Did you have a dream about them? Did you read them in your Bible? Did you watch a movie? Like, it's important for us to examine the pictures we have in our head because when it all goes down, that might be what we have something, this picture. And our Bible is really descriptive. There's a ton of debate over what the images mean, but not what the images are. So my first encouragement to you in this reading plan, as you're reading through Revelation together with all of us, allow it to make an impression on you. Before you try to figure out what bowls and seals and all the other symbols are mean, just see it, like experience it, hear it. It's a very big story. As just an example, this isn't even our text today. The first, I want, I want to just demonstrate how it, what it means to like see it and, and hear it. 
There's a passage in Revelation chapter 10 that just fascinates me. Again, it has nothing to do with our teaching today, but Revelation chapter 10, if you want to close your eyes, you can see it in your mind. If you, if you want to just look up in the sky, whatever you want to do. But it says, then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. So John is speaking in first person. He's the author of Revelation. He, John saw a mighty angel. He was robed in a cloud with a rainbow above his head. His face was like the sun and his legs were like fiery pillars. He was holding a little scroll which lay open in his hand. He planted his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and he gave a loud shout like the roar of a lion. So my first question is like, the book of Revelation should stir curiosity in you. And my first question is like, if an angel sounds like a lion, what in the world does God sound like? We don't have to wonder. The Bible tells us what he's going to sound like. Again, he doesn't say, my voice is loud. My voice is booming. My voice is commanding. He's going to paint a picture. This is how he talks. So he tells us in Ezekiel 43, his voice is like the sound of many waters. Revelation 1, he'll say it again. The voice is like the sound of many waters. Jeremiah 10, when he utters his voice, there's a tumult of waters in the heavens. I just like found sounds on my internet of some rushing waters. I wanted to play them for you for just a second or two. You could just hear what it might sound like to hear God when, when we hear him speak. And I, I think North Star has an amazing sound system, but probably it's gonna be a little louder than that, right? I mean, like, this is part of what God wants us to do. Run our imagination. What will it sound like when those waters start? I don't want them to, if I go into my amygdala, I want to be thinking, no, this is his sound. This is his voice. He's going to be talking to me. I've been hearing him my whole life. I know what he sounds like. It's okay. I can hear that. I want it to create worship in me. That passage goes on to say, when he shouted, the angels, the voices of the seven thunders spoke. And then when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write, John was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven. We know what the voice from heaven sounds like. It sounds like those waters. And God said to him, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. Uh, when I read that, I was like, oh, thank goodness. There are some things we don't have to know yet. God said, like, it's not time for them to know that yet. When it's time for them, I'll let them know that thing that you just heard. Don't tell them that yet. That's not time. There are some things he needs to know. And what it is that he, we, he needs to know, he's told us that's what we hold on to. I've told you all before that Todd and I have a large family, and the youngest son that I adopted, I adopted at age 12, which meant he spent half his childhood being raised in another place. And when we decided to adopt him, he was essentially a stranger to us. And we tried to get to know him over the telephone for a little over a year in the process of adoption while we were in that in-between. And he would tell us on a regular basis he didn't actually believe the adoption was going to happen because he had never had an adult follow through on anything with him before. So he didn't think it was true, and he would get really afraid. And now, you, now that you're all neuroscientists, you understand when he was afraid, his amygdala was like activated, right? And, and he couldn't, I couldn't logically help him up here and cause and effect and creative thinking and problem solving. He's just afraid. And so I told him one day, here's what I do when I'm afraid. I remind myself of the things that are true. That's what I hold on to. And he said, I don't know anything is true. I said, okay, fine. You can hold on to what I know is true. Here's what I know is true. I'm coming for you. Nothing's stopping me. 
You are our son. And God has a plan, and I, don't, I might not like it or understand it, but I promise you, you can trust it. And that became our own code words, what you might call a life script. At the end of every exchange we had during that adoption process, we would finish that call, and he would have to say to me before I would let him hang up, I'm your son, you're coming for me, God has a plan, and I can trust it. Great, that's all I need to know. Thanks, good night. And finally, when it was time for us to go to court, we were, he was so excited that morning. He woke up, knew he had a plane ticket in his new name. He was going to come to America. It was like going to be like, like so exciting. And we walked into the courthouse. And now that, again, you understand about amygdalas, his amygdala went crazy. Because the last time he'd been in that room, a house, a family had fallen apart, not come together. And in the fight, flight, or freeze response, he's a freezer. And so we went into the courtroom and all the adults did the things that adults did, but he actually could not come up with anything to say. And in Mexico, where he was being adopted from, if you're over the age of 12, you have to testify in your own voice. It's your desire to repatriate to another country. So eventually the judge looked at him and said, Would you, are you ready? Would you like to go with his family and live forever with them permanently in the United States? And all he had to do was say, see. Sí. But he couldn't do it. He couldn't, he couldn't function up here. He was just back here going crazy in his amygdala. And so I'm, I'm negotiating with the judge. Hey, listen, can you write it down? Can you get some of these people out of here? Can he go with you back in your chambers? And the guy said to me, hey, I'm sympathetic of what's happening here, but this is the way the law is written. He has to say it in his words in front of these people. So we sat there for a long time. Honestly, it was probably only like five minutes. But I'm, I mean, I was not going anywhere. And finally, Tyler looked up at them and said, I am their son, and they came for me and God has a plan, and I'm gonna trust it. And I said to him later that night, that is exactly why you put truth in your heart, so that in the moment when you most need it, it's right there for you at the ready, right? This is why we put the, the, the pictures and the truths of the book of Revelation in our heart, because I promise you, if the end of the world happens in your lifetime, your amygdala is gonna go off. <laughs> You're gonna feel some five flatter phrase. And in that moment, you're going to need truth right there for you at the ready. Here's some of the things we know for sure are true. He tells us that no one will know when the time comes. So listen to me. Don't you be buying anything somebody's trying to sell you about when this is going to happen. It, it, it says in our Bibles, in a moment, the trumpet will sound and everything, everyone, we will all be changed. We'll have heavenly bodies and heavenly minds. Hallelujah. There will be a tribulation and terrible times in the last days. This is a story that's been building for a really long time, and it is going to come to an end. And if you've been waiting around to figure out which side you want to pick, I wouldn't wait much longer. And we know that the tent that is our earthly home will be destroyed. But we have a building from God, a house not made with our own hands, eternal in heaven. And this house has a bunch of rooms, and one of those rooms is for you if your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. He has a place for you. You don't have to worry. We can trust these things, that while something new will be beginning, something else will be ending, and the end of the debate will be over. What is, we don't have to debate what is true any longer. Revelation 19 will say, says this, after I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven, so just, again, hear that picture, hear that. What was the roar of a great multitude in heaven? They're, they're shouting this word, hallelujah. I've told you what hallelujah means before, but let's review. Hallelujah is a Hebrew word that's two words sewn together. The first part of that word is hallel. Hallel means to make a loud noise, to celebrate, to rave, to boast, to shout. Think as loud of a noise as you can make. 
And the second part of that word comes in Exodus chapter three when God was talking to Moses in front of a burning bush and Moses finally says, fine, I'll go do what you tell me to do. But who do I tell them sent me? Like literally, what is your name? And God says to him, Yahweh, I am. So what is this multitude doing, this great roar of a multitude? They're making a loud noise, celebrating, boasting, celebrating the great I am, hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are his judgments. And I want to take just a little PS here for a minute, a little rabbit trail. Our Bibles say that, lots of different places, that creation has been worshiping since the beginning. It's crying out. One of my favorite ones is in um, Psalm 96. It says, let the earth and the sea and the fields and the trees and the forests, let everything shout and sing for joy. In fact, the Bible says even the rocks are crying out. Creation is worshiping God. There was worship in the beginning and there was worship in the end. And I want to read you a passage. I'm literally going to read it from my Bible so you know I'm not making it up. Revelation chapter 5. Again, let the picture be painted in your mind. If you want to close your eyes, close your eyes. If you want to look at me and while I read it to you, you can. It says, then I saw a lamb looking as it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by four living creatures. And then the elders, we'll read in a minute, there'll be 24 of those elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out to all of the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders, they fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp. And they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And then they sang a a new song. And the song said, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God. And they reign on all the earth. So you just can kind of picture whatever that looks like in your head with the lamb and the whole thing. And these people are telling him, like, thank you for doing all that. And then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands. And whenever you read the word thousand by someone who speaks Hebrew, it's like a, it's like a, it's the word euphemism. It's like, it's like a word that means more than what it really means. It means like a thousand means like more than I could ever imagine. So thousands upon thousands is like more than I could ever imagine that I could ever imagine. We might say today, I saw a gazillion times a gazillion. I saw like a gazillions of them, right? I saw that many angels, so paint that in your mind. What, the, what does a gazillion angels look like in your mind? Okay, right? Thousands upon thousands and ten thousands times ten thousands. And they circled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. So like, what did, right now we got the whole earth is worshiping God. And now all of heaven, heaven is worshiping God. Like balconies, like, I, mean, I don't know if heaven has balconies, but like, however you fit a gazillion creatures worshiping God. And this makes me think about uh, Hebrews chapter 12, right, where, where it's written that there is a great cloud of witnesses, those in our faith family who have gone before us and who are now in this worship service. Again, I just want to tell you, worship today did not start at 9 and 11. Like, worship has been going on for a very long time. God let John see it, and John gave us a picture of it. All of earth, all of heaven, they were encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders and in a loud voice they were saying this worthy is the lamb who was slain 
to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is within them. And like, so just paint that in your brain. And they were saying, he who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And I don't know if you ever feel alone in your faith journey. Like, I am the only one praising God right now. I am the only one that knows the truth. I am the only one. But God gave picture, this picture to John to say, there is a throne and the lamb is on it. And everyone knows it. In case right now in your world, it feels like nobody knows it. I want to help you understand. Everybody will know it. Yes, yes. The, the end of waiting is over. We, we know he will return in great power and glory with every eye. We'll see his true identity. Revelation 19 says, I saw in heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages wars. His eyes are like blazing fire, and don't let that fire scare you. He's always in fire, burning bushes and tongues of fire and pillars of fire. Like Fire means the spirit. It's all good. And his head are many crowns, again, I mean, anyway, okay. He has his name written on him, and no one knows it but himself, and he's dressed in a robe, dripped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. Again, think John. Look, look what John is. We've already heard him talk about this, John 1, 1, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. We don't have to wait to know him. We can know him now. We can know the Word. This is who is on the throne. We know all suffering and persecution of the saints will end, Revelation 7, and they said, uh, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne, you've already painted his picture, this, this, he, he will shelter them with his presence. Again, John is Jewish. He's going to give us pictures he's already given us. Where do we read that God is shelter? Lots of places read as God is shelter. My favorite one is that I, I've told you all before. My mom told me growing up that Psalm 91.1 is the 911 verse that says, whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. What are these people who have come out of the great tribulation doing? They're sitting in his shelter and they're experiencing his rest. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst, it says. The sun will not beat them down on them, nor any scorching heat. So many references to the book of Exodus. This church, North Star, loves, like I do, the country of Haiti. You all have traveled there. You have invested in there. Yeah, what is happening on that island right now is unspeakable. Unspeakable violence against men and women and children. There is hunger and rape and shortage of food and water. And we have spiritual siblings there. And guess what they're crying out right now to each other? Maranatha. He's coming. He's coming. Keep your eyes fixed on things above. It's coming. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. God's like desperate to help us understand what he's going to be like. He doesn't say, and then I'll take care of you and protect you. He's like, I'm going to paint you a picture. He's a shepherd. And he will lead them to springs of living water. He talks to us at ton in our Bibles about water, right? This is the God we've always known. We read about in Exodus, he'll hit a rock and water will gush out. I like the passage in Isaiah 55 where he says, come to me, all of you who are thirsty, come to the waters. 
I'm the spring of living water. Remember, I've told you, this whole Bible we can sum up in two words, two words, complicated as it seems. The first word is come. He is always inviting us. Come to the waters. Come into relationship with me. All the children can come to me. Come into my tabernacle. Come, come, come. He's an invitational God, and the invitation is for every person and every tongue, tribe, and nation. Everyone that you have ever loved, the invitation is for them, come. And the second word is go. Go, we are to go out and tell people where it is that we drank waters that satisfied us. The passage goes on to say, and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. He's just, he's just reintroducing himself through John. This is something he's been telling us he's going to do. Again, in Isaiah chapter 25, he says, On the mountain he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all people and the sheet that covers up all nations. He will swallow up all death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He's just saying, hey, John, everything I've ever told you I'm going to be, I, I am. I am, Yahweh, I am. And we know that Satan and his demons who have deceived the nations and brought untold amounts of devastation will be punished eternally. Revelation 20 promises that. We can hold on to that. This is something we can have right there at the ready for us. The devil who has deceived them was thrown into a lake of burning sulfur where the beast and false prophets have been thrown. They were tormented day and night forever and ever and ever. And on all the days it might seem like it might be happening in the other direction, the Bible makes it very clear. The devil does not win. He does not win. And he knows it. He knows it. Which is why he's trying to take down as many of us with him as he can. This is his scheme. I'll never forget where I was the first time I heard what I'm going to read to you here in conclusion. Uh, there's a famous missionary. I know the more years that pass, the less known she is. But Amy Carmichael was a missionary to India and a huge inspiration to me at a part in my life and when I was uh, wanting to follow God in, in those kinds of ways. And she felt like the Lord had given her a prophetic vision for the church, a dream that she wrote down and shared widely, as widely as she could. It was the story about a church. There were some people that were sitting in circles and they were making daisy chains while lost people were falling off a cliff surrounding them. And so I want you to just, I've been telling you to paint pictures in your mind. Get one of those fancy TVs that has like a picture in picture, you know, like we can have two pictures happening at the same time. On one side of your screen, I want you to put the picture that you painted with the gazillions of angels and all of earth uh, worshiping God and the, the great cloud of witnesses and that whole, that whole worship service that's happening right now, hallelujah, at the top of their lungs, celebrating in a loud voice. And in the other side of your screen, I want you to paint the picture that God gave Amy that I'm going to read to you today. Then I saw forms of people moving single file along the grass. They were making for the edge. There was a woman with a baby in her arms and another little child holding on to her dress. She was on the very verge. Then I saw that she was blind. She lifted her foot for the next step, but it trod air. She was over and the children were over with her. Oh, the cry as they went over. Then I saw more streams of people flowing from all quarters. All were blind, stone blind. All made straight for the precipice's edge. There were shrieks as they suddenly knew themselves falling and a tossing up of helpless arms, catching and clutching at empty air. But some went over quietly and fell without a sound. Then I wondered with a wonder that was simply 
agony, why no one stopped them at the edge. I could not. I was glued to the ground, and I could only call, though I strained and I tried, only a whisper would come. Then I saw that along the edge, there were sentries set at intervals, but the intervals were too great, and there were wide, unguarded gaps between. And over these gaps, the people fell in their blindness, quite unwarned, and the green grass seemed blood red to me, and the gulf yawned like the mouth of hell. And then I saw, like a little picture of peace, a group of people under some trees with their backs turned toward the gulf. They were making daisy chains. Sometimes when a piercing shriek cut the quiet air and reached them, it disturbed them, and they thought it a rather vulgar noise. And if one of their numbers started up and wanted to go and do something to help, then all the others would pull that one down. Why should you get so excited about it? You must wait for a definite call to go. You haven't finished your daisy chain yet. It would be really selfish, they said, to leave us to go finish the work alone. Listen, this is not a Sunday school lesson. Like, this is the story of God, and it doesn't happen to us, it happens with us. And he gave us a huge responsibility in this. In fact, after Jesus came to earth and had his life and then had his ministry and then died on a cross and three days later resurrected and he was getting ready to go back up to heaven again and he knew the next time he was coming it was going to be Maranatha. It would be when he came back to come and get us and bring us home. He decided to use his time, his mouth, his words to leave us with this. He said, listen, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go, go, go be a sentry. Go stand on that golf. Go, go warn them, go. Make disciples of all nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. And then what? Surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Oh my gosh, North Star. We are not going to make daisy chains. We're not gonna do it. We're gonna come to the waters we're gonna join in all of heaven and earth worshiping him. And then we're gonna go because we hold in our hands two things, hope and urgency. The hope is that this is true and we can have it right there for us at the ready at any point in time when we find ourselves afraid. But the other part of this message, it's, it's urgent. We have to live like we do not know when this is gonna come. And we have to tell until all know, everyone knows. People spend so much time trying to figure out what all the symbols mean in the book of Revelation. They actually fight about it. The church fights about this book. We are not gonna fight about this book. If at the end of the study of Maranatha, you have a sense to hold on to a kingdom that's yet to come and to tell the whole world we've gotten the message. Let's pray. Jesus, oh, I cannot even imagine that our voices lift to join what's happening around you. Hallelujah. We celebrate the great I am. We are not alone. Thank you that you have prepared a place for us. Thank you that you will be who you have always been to us, faithful and true. We do not need to be afraid. 
And Jesus, thank you that you invite us into relationship, into the kingdom, into the waters, under your shelter, to you, the shepherd. You've invited us. So Jesus, we accept that invitation and we come to you and we look you straight in the eye and we commit to the go. So it is with the authority I have as a co-heir with you that I ask you release an anointing of commission of go on this church, that we would go to our neighbors, we would go to the ends of the earth, we would go to our family, we would go. We would go and tell them who you are. And I pray these things in the holy and resurrected name of your son, Jesus, the one who sits on the throne. Amen. 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 If you guys would stand as we head into the end of this morning, one of the things that Beth mentioned this morning um, was that there is a 24-7 worship session going on in heaven right now. There has been, there is, and it's not going to stop. It's something that's it's going and going and going. And this, it's not, the worship didn't start at 9 and 10 this morning. And like, it's been going on. We're, we're jumping into what's already happening. So I just invite us as we go into this next time, there's going to be prayer teams up here. Feel free to come forward for communion. Um, but I just invite you to yield yourself to the Lord and put your body in a posture of worship, whatever that may look like. Um, for me, um, it's very physically responsive. I hold my hands out or up. I say, Lord, I'm yours. You're very, you're very vulnerable when you do this. You say, Lord, I, I give myself to you. Maybe it's closing your eyes. So you're not easily distracted. So I just invite us as we step into this time just to just present yourself before the Lord as his word says a living sacrifice Jesus we want to be Maranatha people so Lord we join in with heaven and that Maranatha cry we join in with our brothers and sisters around the globe who have who that that phrase just holds so much more weight to them than us right now Lord, let it, let it hold more weight to us as we, as we hear that word, as we pray that word. And Lord, we join with heaven this morning. I got this picture in the first service of the, of the balconies and the, the multitudes in heaven. And I just got this picture of some of us that just like, just kind of squeezing into the aisle next to angels. And I just like Beth was saying, just like visualize this, just like, we are, we're joining in with heaven in a song that has been going on forever. So Lord, we come before you this morning. Maranatha. Lord, would you increase that in our prayer language, our prayer walk as we go throughout the week? Would you ignite the Maranatha cry on our heart? So as we sing this last song, I invite you to engage. Come forward for prayer. If you're like, I, I want to yearn for the Lord more. I need more of that Maranatha cry upon my heart. I invite you to come forward for prayer for that. So feel free for prayer and communion. We're going to worship.